0: This is Federalism Matters, a podcast making federalism real and relevant to our daily lives. I'm Dr. Wes LaCrone, fellow at the Center for the Study of Federalism and professor of political science at Widener University. Today's topic explores why Americans have such a unique way to choose their president through the Electoral College. However, before we explore this issue, I encourage you to visit us at federalism.org If you'd like to learn more about federalism or specific issues related to federalism, you can always stay up to date on all of our activities by signing up for our newsletter. And now, our topic for today's podcast. The United States has a unique method to elect its president, the Electoral College. Through this institution, the founders combined principles of democracy and federalism to choose the chief executive. What's the theory behind the Electoral College? How does it work in practice? What are criticisms of this method of choosing the president? We'll explore these questions in today's Federalism Matters podcast. I'm joined by Dr. Troy Smith, fellow at the Center for the Study of Federalism and professor of political science at Brigham Young University, Hawaii. He recently authored a Federalism Digest titled The Electoral College, Combining Democracy and Federalism, which we'll discuss today. The full report is available at federalism.org. Dr. Smith, welcome.
1: Thank you, Wes. It's good to talk to you again. Thanks for the opportunity to talk about this very important Great
0: to have you back. Let's start by defining some terms that are often difficult to understand and, frankly, sometimes blur together for many people. You discussed the Electoral College in relation to the concepts of a Republican form of government and of democracy. What do we mean by those terms?
1: democracy generally speaking means popular government which means the government derives its power from the people is accountable to the people and serves the public good democracy can also have specific meanings For example, direct democracy, which is what was practiced in ancient Greece. It means the citizens vote directly on all laws and policy. In contrast, a representative democracy, like the United States, has citizens vote for representatives, and it's the representatives who then vote for the laws and policies. They represent the people in the institutions like Congress or the city council. Another form of democracy is majoritarian democracy. Under this system, Decisions are decided by a vote, and the majority, the side with the most votes, wins. The problem with majoritarian democracy is the majorities can be tyrannical. They can adopt laws and policies that tyrannize the minority. This is something that America's founding fathers were very aware of and concerned about. They'd experienced it under the Articles of Confederation. They wanted popular democracy but not majoritarian democracy. They wanted representatives who would take the sense of the people, but not the passions of the people. They wanted representatives who would use their best judgment to identify and promote the public good, rather than simply majoritarian interest. So the constitution creates a popular democracy, but it creates non-majoritarian elements to prevent tyranny and protect the people, especially the minorities.
0: The founders debated a number of methods of choosing the president at the Constitutional Convention. Before we talk about the Electoral College, what other options were on the table and why didn't they choose those options? The method
1: for selecting the president was a real problem for the founders. Remember, a big problem at the Constitutional Convention was the power difference between the big and small states. Under a majoritarian democracy, the big states with the large populations would win probably most of the votes, at least where that was the issue. The founders solved that problem in the legislative chamber with a great compromise, which is where they created the legislature into two chambers, the House of Representatives, elected by the people, and the Senate, which represented the state. So that's that solved the problem for the legislative branch, but it didn't prevent the problem in the presidential branch where large states would dominate the presidency. In addition to the large state, small state dispute, there were also divisions between the north and south and rural urban areas, which could also result in majority tyranny. So the challengers faced that problem in electing the president and they devised a system. They wanted a system where the president represented the entire country, not just the powerful segments within the country. A couple of propositions or proposals they suggested for how to do that was to have the governors elect the president or to have state legislators choose the president. The one that got the most attention was having Congress select the president. They ultimately rejected that because they realized that would violate the principle of separation of powers and make the president dependent on Congress. In the end, they created a very unique process for selecting the president that they felt accomplished the goal of getting the president to represent the entire country or the vast majority of the country rather than powerful segments within the country.
0: Those are some of the, uh, the alternatives that we come up with. That brings us to what became known as the Electoral College. It's very unique to the U.S. What's this unique kind of institution all about, and what were the founders thinking when they came up with this concept?
1: So this is kind of a convoluted, complex process. We can break it down into three steps. First, on the first Tuesday of November of a presidential election year, the citizens in each state vote not for the president or the president presidential candidates, they vote for a slate of electors, a group of people who are dedicated to one presidential candidate. The second step is those electors who are elected by the people in their state gather together in the state capitol in December and vote for an actual presidential candidate. Their votes are then sent to Washington DC to the House of Representatives. The third step in January, the House of Representatives counts those votes and the official winner of the presidential contest is declared. So those are the three steps. But let's go back to that first step in November when the people vote for a slate of electors. Each state has a number of electors equal to their number of senators plus representatives. And then the District of Columbia gets three votes, which is the the least number the smallest states have. So California has 54 votes, Pennsylvania has 19, and Wyoming has three. So there's different weights Each state has a different number that gives their state a different weight in the vote for president. Now, the presidential winner is the one who gets a majority of those electoral votes. There are 538 total electoral votes, which means the winning presidential candidate needs 270 electoral votes.
0: So this is a federalism podcast and you titled your federalism digest the electoral college combining democracy and federalism Can you explain a bit more about why federalism is such an important aspect of the electoral college?
1: the Electoral College is a federal electoral system because presidential candidates win state by state in contrast a majoritarian democratic method would select the president by whoever got the most votes from the people overall so it is federal in the sense that it's done by state but it's also democratic because it does have that majoritarian principle the the winner is the one who gets the most votes but it's modified a bit to equalize better equalize the Votes between the large and the small states, rather than giving the large states an overwhelming influence.
0: Let's move a bit beyond theory into practice. How has the Electoral College affected American presidential elections? Would the presidency really be any different if we had a popular majority vote to choose?
1: The electoral college system radically affects the presidential campaign system, and it would be very, very different if it was a majoritarian national referendum system, because under that system you would have very different political campaign strategies, very different issues and topics that the candidates would run on. It would look very, very different. Let me explain. The consequence of this federal electoral system to select the president is it reduces the large state's electoral power, but it still gives them relatively greater power than the less populous states. To win in this type of a system, the winning presidential candidate has to cobble together a broad coalition of support from across the nation rather than simply focusing on the most populous areas. So yes, in practice, the electoral college system radically affects the presidential campaign strategies. They have to campaign differently as a result of how the votes are weighted and counted. Some people claim that Hillary Clinton would have won the presidential election in 2016 16 if it had been a national referendum because she received more popular votes than Donald Trump. And it would probably make the same argument for Al Gore in 2000. However, we have to recognize that if the presidential election were based on who got the most popular votes, the campaigns would campaign very differently, the candidates' positions would be radically different, and even the party composition would be radically different than how it currently is. So who could say who would actually win in those elections if the electoral system were radically different because everything that goes along with that would be radically different.
0: So the whole concept of having swing states will be right out the window.
1: Right. And that's one of the arguments against the Electoral College is it gives these swing states, um, they get to decide who becomes the president. But in any type of electoral system, you have swing votes. You have those who are in the middle who are going to decide who wins or loses. So yes, you have swing states under the Electoral College. Those happen oftentimes to be the moderate states or those states with a balance between Republicans and Democrats. If you went to a national referendum, there would be swing voters who would play the same sort of role in the system. You you can't, if you're going to have elections, you're not going to, unless you have a totally polarized country and nobody in the middle, and even then you're going to have swing votes of one form or another.
0: We do live in a polarized country, given the current political divide in the U.S., you know, Combined with, you, you just mentioned the elections of 2000 and 2016, where the Electoral College you know, was the deciding factor and who became president, You know, there's been a serious amount of criticism of the Electoral College. Can you explain why some people would like to change the system?
1: Yeah, there's been a lot of uh, proposals uh, over the years for changing the Electoral College system. Some of that's very practical, pragmatic. They think that their group would have more advantages under one system. But there's also a principled case to be be made against the electoral college system and that's that it is undemocratic in the sense that democracy is defined as majoritarian democracy and the principle of democracy is one person one vote which is every person should have a vote and every vote should count equally which fits part of that American ideal going back to the Declaration of Independence of equality that all humans are created equal so that equality is an underlying principle and, and there's a sense that the electoral college violates that they want that one person one vote which would be a national referendum the problem with that is again majoritarian democracy can result in majority tyranny and under a national referendum most of the population lives in urban areas and would have be highly favored to the presidential candidates would run on an urban strategy and neglect the other interests that are very relevant within the system. So in a way to counter, to to, to maintain that democracy, democratic system, but to counter the overwhelming majorities, the founders came up with the electoral college system as a way to force presidential candidates to build a broad coalition across the country. Another problem with the Electoral College system is that under our current systems, 48 states have what are called winner-takes-all elections. Under these conditions, under these laws, the presidential candidate who wins the state electoral votes wins all of the electoral votes. So if a person wins by one vote in California, they get all of California's 54 electoral votes. And in states where one party clearly dominates, the members of the minority party may not turn out to vote for president because they're like what's the point my vote isn't is going to be overwhelmed by the others and there's not going to be no votes from my state for my candidate so how many Republicans in California and how many Democrats in Texas don't turn out to vote because they know that their presidential candidate isn't going to get any votes uh, in their state or most likely not going to so a popular vote for president some believe would encourage more people to actually turn out and vote.
0: Do you think there's any chance that we'll see the electoral college replaced in the near future?
1: There are a number of proposals to change the presidential selection system. Most of them are seeking a some form of a national referendum. One of the more interesting ones that's gaining a fair amount of momentum is the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. And this is a way to change the, the the system for electing the president from the electoral college to a national referendum without a constitutional amendment. It's really actually quite ingenious how they've put this together. So so far 16 states and the District of Columbia have signed on to this interstate compact. That's 205 electoral votes remember the winning presidential candidate needs 270 so what this compact does is it says that when enough states have signed on to the compact to equal 270 votes this will take effect. And the effect is is that each of those states will give their electoral votes to the candidate who gets the most popular votes. So this would be a way to bypass the electoral college, implement majoritarian democracy using interstate compacts rather than, than a constitutional amendment, which is much more difficult to do.
0: Well, we appreciate your commentary today, Dr. Smith, on the Electoral College. I'm, I'm glad we could talk about that and federalism. I'm you know, always happy to talk federalism. It's certainly a unique electoral mechanism, and uh, you've provided an interesting overview. Thank you very much for being here with us.
1: Thanks for the opportunity to talk with us.
0: You, you can check out Dr. Smith's Federalism Digest on the Electoral College at federalism.org. It includes additional resources for exploring the Electoral College, and if you're an educator, topics for classroom discussion. To learn more about this and other federalism-related topics, please visit us at federalism.org. Of course, there's a wealth of other information about the American federal system at federalism.org, including the option to subscribe to our newsletter to be notified of future podcasts and reports. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Federalism Matters, and remember, federalism balances self-rule and shared rule.